The Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's about the death of Moses. And uh, we'll talk more about this uh, during the sermon, and it relates to the gospel reading too. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His, eyes, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Mo- Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This reading is from Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, more about Moses here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor, than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the ninth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
So it's Transfiguration Sunday today. And I'm going to talk in the sermon about why this is Transfiguration Sunday. And uh, what Transfiguration Sunday means in the story of not just the church here, but especially what it means in the story of the Bible. What it means in the story of God's plan to redeem his creation back to himself. But what I want to do is a little bit different than what I normally do this morning. This will feel more Bible study-ish, I think. Is What I want to do is I want to read the gospel reading and walk through it and talk about the weird things that are in there that uh, are kind of confusing, that are a little bit uh, unexplainable. I mean, and what I don't mean is supernatural. There's lots of stuff in the, in the whole Bible, but in the, in the story of the gospel that's supernatural, uh, Jesus comes up to a guy with leprosy and heals him. We know what that means, even though we don't know mechanically how it happens. We know that Jesus has the power of the creator God to save humans, and he can heal diseases, and so he does it. We don't really understand, but we know what it means in the story. He's rescuing this poor guy from his leprosy. But in the story of the transfiguration, there are supernatural things, but a lot of them just go unexplained, and you might read it and think, what's up with that? Why is that happening here? What does it mean? And so what I want to do is talk about some of those things. And I don't claim to understand everything about the Transfiguration story. It is, it's extremely powerful, but it also, it's pulling on all these little different strands from the rest of Scripture and weaving them into this brief eight or nine verse tapestry that's designed to connect stuff from Scripture before and stuff that's going to happen later on in Jesus' life. And it's all kind of bound up together. And a lot of times I feel like I'm looking at like the back of the tapestry where you see it all coming together, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think that this might help this morning, make a little bit of sense. Maybe we can get around to the front side of the tapestry just a bit. Okay, so the gospel reading, and this is all, this is printed out here in your bulletin, uh, Luke chapter nine. Now about eight days after these things, after these sayings, and we'll talk at the end of the sermon about what those sayings are, because it's actually kind of important to understand what's happening in the transfiguration, to understand what Jesus was saying right before the transfiguration. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James. A lot of times, so there's these different circles in Jesus' life, in your life too, actually. Uh, you know, he has a large group of followers. He has a smaller circle of the 12, which people who are with him more frequently. And then he has this sort of like little tiny close-knit circle Peter, James, and John are with him a lot, a lot more than Bartholomew is, for instance. And he goes up with them on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, uh, verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And so that's the first one I want to talk about this morning. Why, why does it mention his clothing becoming really, really white? He's transfigured. Uh, we all understand that. But also his clothing becomes super white. And let me just make this comment real quick. And this will be, we're going to touch on this one and then we're going to move on to some probably bigger, bigger questions here. When you see clothing that's really, really white, supernaturally white in the Bible, it's usually some sort of connection with the power of heaven. It's usually some sort of connection with deity, with God's power. And especially important, I think, is this passage here from Daniel chapter 7, which I'm going to read to you now. Daniel has this vision and he sees in his vision that thrones are set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow. So he sees this vision of God, Daniel does, and his clothing is just like Jesus' clothing here. 
dazzling white. It's pure. It's as white as snow. And then later on here, verse 14, oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. In my vision at night, Daniel says, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, which also clouds are going to be important in the transfiguration story. There's a reason. It's not just meteorological. There's a reason here. Uh, Daniel 7 stuff is getting pulled into first century Galilee. So there's one like the son of, a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So, so capture, if you can, in your mind, Daniel's vision. Here's God, the Creator God, the Ancient of Days, clothed in pure white. And here comes a Son of Man, which is Aramaic for a human being. And he's brought into the presence of the all, which is in itself strange. You just don't walk into the presence of the Almighty in the Bible. You just have to be some sort of veil in between you or some sort of mediator. The blood of animals are especially, you guys know, the blood of Jesus. But this guy, this, this human being, this son of man, is able to walk into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And here's what the Ancient of Days does for him. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. That's crazy language for a human being. This human being is somehow able to share in the worship which the Ancient of Days receives which can only be legit if he is sharing in the nature of the Ancient of Days as well. So do you you see what's happening here? Is what's happening on top of that mountain here in Luke chapter 9 is Daniel 9, Daniel 7 coming true. The Ancient of Days is meeting Peter, James, and John get to see it. And here is a son of man, which, by the way, let's not get into this right now, is Jesus' favorite name for himself, not coincidentally, who in the cloud is sharing with the worship which only the ancient days is able to receive. And so his clothes are going to be dazzling white as well. Okay, that's the first question. Let's keep on reading and uh, build on that maybe a touch. Verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, uh, Moses and Elijah. Now let's talk about why, out of all the people that could be there, Moses and Elijah were there. Why anybody, I guess. Right, But why Moses and Elijah? We just sang Jesus on the Mountain Peak, which is a really cool song, a really cool hymn, and uh, maybe we didn't know it as well as we should, but it's a good one. We'll sing it uh, next Transfiguration, too, or, and maybe even in between then. Uh, you, you, were you paying attention to the words? I mean, you heard what the interpretation of this was there. The law and the prophets are being represented by Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. Of course, Moses is a prophet, too. And so it kind of falls apart if you're going to be too picky. I don't know if law and the prophets is what uh, God is going for here by bringing in Moses and Elijah. Although the law and the prophets do bear witness to Jesus. I'm not saying that that's not true. But that's not exactly the main thing that's happening here. It's fine if we sing it in the hymn. I like the hymn. But what does it mean, Moses and Elijah? And this is some of this is going to be speculation. Some of this, I think, is just good Let's read the Bible together and see what Moses and Elijah are doing in the story of the Bible, what they have in common with each other, and then how that might help us understand what Jesus is doing on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, what do Moses and Elijah have in common with each other? Uh, Both of them, and there's not too many of these characters in the Bible, both of them are word and deed prophets. Lots of prophets. In, in the Old Testament, prophets and, and some prophetesses. Uh, most of them are word prophets. 
Think about like Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't do, doesn't do any miracles as far as we know, any powerful. He just preaches a lot. He gets messages from God in a vision. And he or one of his amanuensis write these visions down. And we have them in our Bible today, the prophecy of Isaiah. But he doesn't do a whole lot of things. You have um, deed prophets, though, like Moses, who does miracles, right? I mean, Moses lifts up his staff and the Red Sea parts. Moses says, I'm going to make the Nile turn into blood, and it does. Elijah is the same way. Elijah, actually, we don't have a record of a lot of Elijah's preaching. We don't know a lot of what Elijah said as far as sermons, but we do have lots of stories of mighty deeds that Elijah did. And a lot of them that some of you would be surprised at, that if you go back, you'd be like, dang, this guy looks like some sort of proto-Jesus. I mean, he's raising the dead. He's uh, healing the sick. He, at one point, in a really bizarre story that not a lot of people know about, he has bread, and he takes this bread, and he tells one of his disciples, one of his disciples, there's a group, there's a huge group of people over here. Take this bread and go feed them. And the disciple says to him, I can't do, that's not enough bread to feed all those people. And Elijah says, just do it. I'm telling you that the word of the Lord says they will eat and they will have plenty left over. Just like what Jesus says to the disciples at the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000. He does a lot of deeds. Moses and Elijah are the quintessential word deed prophets. That's one thing that combines them. I think that probably what I'm about to say next is more to the point, though. Moses and Elijah, prophets like Jesus, this is not their first experience in the presence of God on top of a mountain. Like, we're all in the presence of God all the time. God chooses to especially bring his presence to certain times and places. Mount Sinai at the giving of the law was one of those times, right? And Moses gets, receives the law from the Lord on Mount Sinai, from the Lord personally on Mount Sinai, gives it to the people of Israel, they rebel against him. You remember the story, the, the golden calf incident. Moses heads back up to the top of Mount Sinai. And he says to God, he's like, these people are out of control. And God says, I know these people are out of control. You are actually the only person I feel like working with anymore, Moses. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to blow up the entire people of Israel. And I'm going to start a new nation just from you. And Moses says, God, don't, don't do that. All the nations are going to say that you're the kind of God who can't save a people if you do that. And they're going to belittle your work. And God says, okay, I've listened to your prayer. I'm going to relent. I'm going to change my mind. And Moses said, okay, while we're here, can you show me your presence? I want to experience your glory. And God says, that's not possible. You would disintegrate in the presence of my glory. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I want you to go in this cleft in this rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you can only see a part of me. And so Moses gets to see a part of God's real, live presence. And here's that great, that, 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 that great announcement that, that, that Yahweh says when he passes by. You remember this? I'm not going to quote the whole thing to you. Uh, not because it's too long, but because I can't remember all of it. But he says, uh, Yahweh is gracious and merciful, and slow to anger, and forgives thousands of generations. Moses gets to experience God in ways that you and I 
don't get to. Elijah gets the same experience. Do you remember this story? So Elijah, he does the whole thing on the mountain with the, uh, uh, Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And uh, uh, Ahab wants to kill him. And he takes off running. And he's convinced that he's the only believer in Yahweh in all of Israel. And so he takes off. He leaves. And he, interestingly enough, takes him 40 days and 40 nights, 1 Kings 19 says, to get from Beersheba to Mount Horeb, which it shouldn't take that long, but that's exactly the amount of time it took Moses to get from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, where Moses couldn't go in, but commissioned his associate to be the new leader. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, takes 40 days and 40 nights. You guys know what Mount Horeb is? It's just another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy actually calls the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments, Mount Horeb. That's exactly where Elijah goes. And you know where he goes when he gets there? He finds a cave and he goes inside of it. Do you know what he's doing? Do you see what he's doing? He wants to experience. He has been abandoned like he feels Moses has been abandoned. Moses was like the only one left, right, of all the people who were the true, pure worshipers of God. Elijah feels like he's the only true one left. I'm going to go where my man Moses went, and I'm going to go in that cave, and I want to experience the presence of God. And God shows up and says, okay, here it is. You want to experience my presence? And Elijah's like, yeah. And there's this huge wind, a wind so powerful that 1 Kings 19 says it tears up chunks of the mountain. But God's not in that wind. And then there's an earthquake, and God's not in the earthquake, and there's a fire, and God's not in the fire. And then 1 Kings 19 says, and in Hebrew it says, there's sheer silence. And God's presence impregnates that sheer silence. And Elijah pulls his clothes over his head and he falls down on his face. And God says, okay, now what do you want? And he says, I'm the only one left. And God says, so this is very, very different than the Moses. Where God is like, you're the only one left. Let's start over. And Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. And here Elijah's saying, I'm the only one left. And God says, okay, two things. A, I need you to do me a job. And I need you to get up and quit feeling sorry for yourself. And I need you to go do this job. I need you to anoint Hatzael, king of Aram. And I need you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. I need you to find Elijah, your disciple. I need you to lay your hands on him and commission him to be the new leader because I'm taking you. I'm taking you home. And second of all, you're not the only one. There's thousands of people who follow me. Now get up and get busy. Both, so, so both on Mount Sinai too, both Moses and Elijah have experienced the real legitimate presence of God. This isn't the first time they've experienced the real legitimate presence of God, right? Both were, incidentally, I think this is probably related to this, were expected to make, by some strands in, in, in uh, uh, the Judaism of Jesus' day, were expected to make some sort of like miraculous return at the last day. Um, Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18 that God will send you a prophet like me. Many Jews thought, that Moses would somehow return, like they thought from Ezekiel 34, that David would somehow also return. Elijah also as well. I mean, this is all, this is, Isaiah mentions this several times that God is going to ascend. Before the Messiah comes, God is going to send Elijah to, to prepare the way. In fact, the very, the very last line of the Old Testament, the point at which you jump off the Old Testament and you hang in the air for 400 years before you set your feet back down again in Matthew chapter 1, the very last line is this promise that I'm going to send Malachi to you. 
Uh, no, I'm sorry, Malachi says, I'll send Elijah to you before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the last thing that God's people have ringing in their ears as they're waiting for the Messiah. So if you're Peter, James and John, and you're on the mountain of transfiguration, and here's Jesus, and here is Moses and Elijah, these great prophets who've already experienced the presence of God on a mountain, and you have in the back of your mind that these are the two, the, the two witnesses who are going to show up before the Messiah returns, and here they are, what you're going to be thinking is, this is it. This is the end. We are now at the end of the story. Not in the, not end in the sense of like the space-time universe has ended. Jews didn't have any notion of like the space-time universe ending. But the end of their wait, the culmination of this long wait, God unfolding his plan and about to return here in the person of the Messiah and set all things to right again. That's what Moses and Elijah are doing there, I believe. They're participating in this story as previous characters from the story brought back to life here at the very end and to motion that God has once again come down on the mountain to meet with his people. All right, moving on. Uh, he meets with Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, what does that mean? He appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's not death. You know, he is going to go and die in Jerusalem. There's a word for, I'm going to die. He just used that word previously in chapter 8, or actually in chapter 9. This is the word, actually in Greek, this is the word exodus. He spoke of his exodus. And now again, another reason why Moses and Elijah would be there. Moses was the agent of God for the first exodus, right? The, uh, the exodus, which is the first stage in God's plan to liberate his people, now, the first exodus was a liberation from bad political powers, liberation from slavery, liberation from Egypt. That's merely stage one in God's plan to liberate his people. Elijah participated in a sort of replay, a reprisal of this exodus too. Do you know that one of the miracles that Elijah did in 2 Kings chapter 4 is Elijah parts the waters of the River Jordan and crosses over them, replaying the exodus again, announcing that God's exodus plan is not over even though bad nations are still in charge of us. Moses and Elijah's presence on the mountain is, too, a reminder that God has yet a greater exodus in store for his people. The exodus Peter has in mind up, up to this point, and James and John, too, the exodus from Rome. God's going to do again what he did to Egypt. He's going to rescue us from Rome. That's what Peter's been thinking all along. Moses and Elijah there are there to tell Peter, yes, and Jesus is talking about this exodus that he's about to accomplish. It's about to happen. Rome's about to get destroyed. The waters of the Red Sea, or whatever metaphorical Red Sea, are going to be, get parted by Jesus. It's going to happen, and then Jesus is going to raise an army, and somehow, just like with the armies of Pharaoh, the armies of Caesar are going to get destroyed. Peter gets excited about this. That's what departure means. But for Jesus, Exodus, child's play, destroying Rome, or destroying Babylon, or destroying Egypt, or destroying whatever bad political party's in charge of you now, that's child's play. Jesus has bigger fish, fish to fry that Peter doesn't know about yet. And he's not going to learn about uh, for a while. But this also explains why Peter is so excited, right? For Peter, this is, this is the symbol that it's about to happen, that the new age is dawning. And that means I get to sit on one of the thrones of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Caesar and Herod are no longer in charge of us. And this is why, this is why Peter says, um, you know, he wakes up and he says to Jesus in verse 33, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And let's think about that question. Why would Peter want to make tents, tabernacles for them? 
One of the reasons is he's saying is this, is that, okay, so they're here to stay now, right? The new age is dawned, and now Peter, I'm sorry, now Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, these great prophetic figures, these great reminders that God is an Exodus God, are here to live with us forever and to redeem us. And that's when uh, the cloud descends on them, verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So the voice, God the Father's voice says, This is my chosen one. Echoing Daniel chapter 7, this is the one I've chosen. This is the Son of Man who is going to be my real, real Son. And He's going to represent me, and He's going to redeem you. Listen to Him. And then Jesus doesn't say anything in the rest of our text. So what does He mean, listen to Him? Well, He's telling them to listen to what Jesus said in the previous text. From Luke chapter 8. From Luke chapter 8 in the beginning of chapter, Luke chapter 9. And so, what was he saying? It's important to understand what, what Jesus was saying there that they're supposed to listen to. And what Jesus was saying was this. The transfiguration shows up in all three synoptic Gospels. And in all three synoptic Gospels, the story that comes before it is the story of Jesus saying to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give all kinds of answers. Who do you say that I am? And they say, you're the Messiah. This is what Peter says. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he says in one point. You are God's Messiah, he says in Luke. In, in, in Luke. And Jesus says, you're right. Don't tell anybody that you know that. Because Peter knows that he's the Messiah, but he doesn't know what that means. He thinks it's military king who's going to defeat Rome. And Jesus has to correct him. So Jesus says, you're right, I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. I need to do some training with you first. Let's start right now, by the way. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and rise three days later. And not in Luke, but in Matthew and Mark, Peter says, no, that's not true. You're not going to get killed. The Messiah doesn't get killed. The Messiah does the killing. You need to take that back. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the things of God. Now, Peter, of course, still doesn't get it. He's not going to get it, by the way, until the resurrection. Even as far as the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll read about in a month or so, Peter still thinks we're here to fight. We're here to fight Rome. But now in the cloud, Peter's still with these notions of military glory and political power dancing around in his head, sees the glorified Jesus Christ in front of him. He's in the cloud, and God the Father says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. Like, he is going to die. You can't just block that out because you don't like it, Peter. You just can't block that out because that doesn't work with your agenda. The path to glory is the path of the cross. And by the by the way, that's what we're doing here in the church here. So we have the, the season of Christmas where we thought about the birth of Jesus and then more broadly theologically, we thought about the humanity of God. God taking upon himself human flesh in order to rescue us. And then we are wrapping up today the season of Epiphany, which works its way through the first half of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first chunk of the Gospels is filled up with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles. And what he's doing is he's displaying to his disciples to the people of Galilee, and now to us who read the Gospels, he's displaying who he is. He is creating epiphany. I am the eternal second person of the Trinity who has power over sin, death, and the devil. And we've been thinking about that 
And now we're about to start Lent, starting with Ash Wednesday. And we're about to head on this journey towards the cross. And that starts right here. So there's this trajectory in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is telling people who he is. He's displaying his power. Maybe it's turning water into wine. Maybe it's healing lepers. Maybe it's healing Peter's mother-in-law. Maybe it's raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Maybe it's saying, I have the power over sin, death, and the devil. It's all these parables. And now he's about to tell them, listen, I'm headed to Jerusalem and I'm going to die for the sins of the world and be raised three days later. And the the Gospels from this point on, from Luke chapter 9 on, are headed towards the cross. It's Jesus telling his disciples, and in in, in the case of of some of the synoptics, actually making the journey to Jerusalem, all the while explaining to his disciples over and over, in Mark, for instance, three times, I have to die. This is what the, the, the Scripture said about me, I have to die. And standing like the great keystone right in the middle of this trajectory, holding both of these epiphany events, epiphany events and Lent events together, is the transfiguration. It's this promise that the Creator God will be glorified, will stand in all of His power and all of His majesty and all of His glory on this earth, ruling and reigning. But listen to Him. That's not going to happen except through the path of the cross. The path to glory is always the path of the cross. We don't like that. Angela and I were at dinner last night with some friends of ours who don't go to church here, and we were talking, not about transfiguration text, but we were talking about like our impulse as Christians to like check out when things get a little bit too close. You know, you know what's easy is just showing up to church on Sunday morning and like worshiping, and you know, you, you want to know God and you want to be close to Him. There's all these people around you and their lives are completely messy and gross. And you know that if you get involved in their lives, there's going to be conflict and just discomfort. And you're going to be pushed out of your element. You're going to be required to like show up to community group or like have people over to your house or, you know, you're going to have a friend and they're going to say something stupid and you're going to be like, I wish I was at home right now watching TV. And there's all these things that happen in your life. And so what we do is we kind of back off. We back off. That's, that, that's sort of lower level stuff too, right? But, you know, you, you want to be a good Christian and then you get fired or you find out that, you know, your marriage wasn't what you thought it was. Or you get really, really sick. And there, there's, this, there's this like, oh, okay, where have you been at, God? I've been showing up at church all this time. Where are you at? And it's hard for us. Maybe it's an American thing too. It's a human thing, but maybe it's an American thing to understand that the path to glory is always the path of the cross. This is always going to be messy. You're always going to be grappling with your sin. Like You have this shame in your life. You have this sin that you struggle with. And you imagine that because you've confessed this sin over and over and because you've been studying your Bible, that God's going to give you this permanent, like perfection now sort of victory. It's not going to happen. You're always going to have to go back to the feet of the cross over and over and over again. We expect that because we're Christians, like, God, where are you at? We voted for this person to win this election, and then the people that we didn't want to win won, and has God abandoned us? If my people humble themselves and pray, you said that you would return to our land and put in people from the political party of our own choosing. This is all nonsense. The path of glory is never the path of political power. 
It's never the path of like pleasantness and all perfect relationships in my marriage is rock solid and I'm making all this money and like I'm just so happy all the time. The path of glory is the path of the suffering God. The path of glory is the path of us suffering. Paul says all the time, 2 Corinthians, I bear in my bodies all the time the crucified Lord so that I might also bear in my body the power of His resurrection. And when we embrace this, when we embrace this transfiguration reality that the power of the cross is there, it's real, but it's veiled behind our own brokenness. It's veiled behind even to those who don't have eyes to see the humanity of Jesus Christ Himself, which is a complete roadblock. It's veiled behind the execution. You guys follow this guy who was executed for political crimes 2,000 years ago? How weird is that? You guys say that you're like in touch with God, but you guys are hypocrites. You guys have lousy marriages just like me. You guys are selfish just like me. You guys lose your temper just like me. Well, of course you do. The path of glory is always the path of the cross. But what we understand as Christians is that the path of the cross, the path of the crucified Jesus, the path of repentance and forgiveness is the path to that transfiguration. Not, not, not temporary. Where you're like, it's here, here's the cloud, it's gone. But one day Jesus is going to return. One day Jesus is going to rise. He rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. One day he's going to raise us all from the dead too and return. And then that glory will be here permanently, but always and completely bound up with the glory of the cross. Let's embrace that. Let's embrace the suffering Savior. Let's be willing to be the suffering St. James for his honor and glory. Amen.